from Infinite Guest, this is Top Score, a conversation with composers who write music for video games. I'm Emily Reese. Ryan Thompson is a ludomusicologist. Now, ludomusicology is a growing area of the study of music as it applies in video games. Ryan is working on his Ph.D. in musicology from the University of Minnesota. And he stopped by the studios at Minnesota Public Radio to talk about the famous opera scene in Final Fantasy VI. I presented a paper at New York University's Music and the Moving Image Conference a few years ago, three, four years ago now, I forget which, about my understanding of Final Fantasy VI as a whole. And the same time, without either of us knowing it, William Chang presented on Final Fantasy VI also. When we saw the schedule, we were like, we need to talk before we present. (laughs) Uh, Because we had no idea what the other person's paper was on, except two papers on the same topic in an academic world is kind of a dangerous thing. You don't want to step on each other's toes, maybe. Uh, It worked out wonderfully. We complimented each other really, really well. Will's chapter, which is now a chapter in this book, Soundplay, that's kind of like an extension of his dissertation, talks about people's experiences with the opera sequence and how it affected them and how we understand that even though the Super Nintendo sound chip is making what amounts to noises, flute-ish noises, we understand it as the human voice in a very profound way. That we don't normally think of that type of, for lack of a better term, I'll say bleeps and bloops, even though I kind of hate that term. We don't really think about that as emoting in a human way. And Final Fantasy VI really challenges us uh, to confront that assumption. Talk me through that opera scene. I watched it I can only imagine what that would have done to me if I had seen that when I was a kid. So talk me through what happens in, in this scene. And my big argument in this thing I gave in uh, New York at NYU is that the opera sequence itself kind of sums up in a neat way the whole plot of Final yes. Fantasy VI. Yes. Well, first of all, we have to approach it, I guess, how in the game's context we understand it. They need this guy's airship. And the guy who owns this airship, this gambler, is in love with the soprano from the opera. And so he announces that he wants to kidnap this girl because he's madly in love with her. And they decide, well, you know, one of the people we're traveling with kind of looks like her, so why don't we just have this other person sing the opera role and hope that he kidnaps our friends so that we can sneak onto this airship and take it. Uh, And so that's how you end up having to do this opera sequence as part of a larger uh, role-playing game involving saving the planet. The opera sequence introduces its main characters. Uh, it starts out with the hero kind of singing this ballad. He's off at war. He's longing for his heroine. It's a pretty common trope for meeting a new hero character in an opera who he's pining for his love. Uh, and then we cut away, we skip all the parts that would normally be in an opera to get us to the next phase, because uh, we're talking about a 15-minute show instead of a three-hour one. <laughs> yes. And so then we see the love interest pining away for him. And she has been captured, and... 
she's having to deal with having to marry another person, which is another really common trope to operas, this idea that because I'm the conqueror, I get to take this woman as my prize, if you will. And so then the two of them duel, and the expected outcome at that point is that one of them will win, and whether it's a comedy or a tragedy, the joke is that if one wins, it's a comedy. If the other wins, uh, it's a tragedy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it turns out that Final Fantasy VI doesn't actually resolve the opera that way. Um, The opera is supposed to resolve that way, but we jump back to the larger game context in which it takes place, where something ridiculous happens. And what happens is this octopus also hates the opera production company and decides he's going to take revenge on it by murdering the opera star, who he doesn't realize is now the person he fought earlier, part of your group of people. He's also confused in the same way the gambler is. So your party of adventurers has to stop this crazy octopus from foiling the opera. (laughs) And then they end up fighting on stage because the weight ends up knocking out both of the male stars, uh, who are the prince and the hero, who are fighting for this woman's attention. And so during the time you're fighting the octopus, then the wandering gambler comes in and kidnaps the star. So in the context of the game, all goes as planned, even though in the context of the opera, everything is a train wreck. <laughs> you know, it's, it's as if you just dropped six random people onto the stage in the middle of an opera production uh, who can't sing. plot of all of Final Fantasy VI kind of works out in this really ridiculous fashion as well, in that it's set up, I argue, it's set up into three acts. There's three moments where people wake up in a bed. Okay. And the first one is Terra, the game's main character. Wakes up in this bed with no memory of who she was after a very, very brief prologue sequence. And again, memory loss is kind of one of these operatic convenience tropes that video games has really powerfully adopted. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Anyway, Terra doesn't remember anything about her life. So she spends the first half of the game kind of trying to gather fragments of what has happened and who she is and in what context she belongs into this world. And then there's a big pinnacle sequence where you have everybody, or at least who you think is everybody at that time, but a good group of like 10 characters. And after this huge battle, and 10 characters is huge for a Japanese role-playing game, I think it's the most characters you ever have to control anywhere. Wow. uh, Until the very end of Final Fantasy VI we're about to get to. Then another character wakes up in that same bed, and it's playing because Tara flies off. She ends up freak. She freaks out. She realizes that she's only half human, and it's part of the larger. Like she's this supernatural being. Is part of this. Uh, it sounds more like Wagner. The longer I talk about this, <laughs> uh, so the main male protagonist at that point, who's kind of been ferrying Tara around and keeping her safe, wakes up in the bed, and we hear Tara's theme, kind of pointing us to the idea that she's still important and still the main focus. But only up until this moment. Afterwards, the plot kind of goes away from her and we learn more about this context in which they're fighting this empire and all the other characters' uh, desires really come into play during the second, what we think is of the second half of this game. And if you look at a list of things you have to do in order to complete the game, it's kind of an arbitrary list, but things you absolutely must do. No side quests, no nothing. Just what you must do. The moment he wakes up in that bed is the exact halfway point of uh, the first world, what you think is going to be the whole game. Sure, sure. 
And so then we've introduced all the main characters, just like we do in the opera, even though there are a lot more in the context of the game. And we arrive at what we think is going to be this final battle with the Emperor. Everything is set up on this floating island. He's approaching this source of all power and all magic. And you have to stop him, which happens in at least one other Final Fantasy game where they're at the source of the power and you have to go. And I mean, you feel like this is the end when you get there. And then you arrive, you fight this boss who's this legendary beast foretold in legend by a whole bunch of NPC characters throughout the game. And you're like, a new music plays. That's a big deal for a role-playing game. expect that that new music is going to continue as you fight the Emperor's number two guy, who's been a big figure throughout the story, and then finally him, and then the game will end and you're going to win, and it's awesome. You spent about 40 hours in the game at this point, you feel like it ought to be over. <laughs> yeah. Well, just like the opera sequence, where the duel doesn't resolve as expected, uh, this fight also does not resolve as expected. You never fight either the number two guy or the Emperor himself. Number two guy murders the Emperor in front of you, kind of re-establishing the dynamic of power that's going on anyway. And then instead of having to fight him, which would have been a fine closure to most games, uh, he just gets sealed away by this character who you can't control. So you never, you don't do anything. It's just a massive cutscene. And then having sealed this boss away inside the power that he was trying to gain hold of in the first place, uh, you realize that you can't stop what you have started now by interacting with it in any meaningful way. And so you just have to run away from the source of the combat. And at that point, it's like a whole train wreck. You just don't know what's going on. And after a brief escape sequence, you get what looks like a game over screen. And in fact, almost the exact same screen of the earth blowing up and a scary message coming up was used in Chrono Trigger as the last battle's game over screen. In Chrono Trigger, it says, but the future refused to change. You couldn't fix it uh, if you lose to Lavos at the end. And in Final Fantasy VI, it's a really similar message that comes up. And of course, the two games came out about five months apart from one another. So you, can, you know that they had to be thinking along the same lines when they made this. It says, on that day, the world was changed forever. Dot, dot, dot. And then you see the earth exploding and like the screen fades to black. And you're like, well, that, that was exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and... Then you wake up in a bed. Uh, Act three begins, this unexpected resolution uh, to the plot. And a whole year has gone by, and the whole world has changed. Everything, even graphically, you know, we're talking about Super Nintendo graphics, but everything is now burned to the ground. It turns out number two guy has ascended. He controlled the power that you sealed him in. He's a god. And you're going to spend the next 40 hours trying to deal with what that means. And again, just charting a list of, this time not what you absolutely have to do, because that's pretty minimal, it turns out. The back half of Final Fantasy VI, this really non-linear thing compared to almost every other role-playing game in the style out there. But a list of all the stuff the game expects of you, that is, find all the characters you once had, and then finish the game, is exactly as long as the entire first half of the game, if you chart it out point by point. Jeez. That's insane. Yeah, it's a humongous time commitment to get it all done. So where does the opera happen? Which act? The opera happens right in the middle of the second act of the game. So right as you realize there are some bigger pieces moving around the board, but you don't exactly know in what context those pieces are going to be moving quite yet. 
and it's not really an on-the-nose thing. Uh, most players aren't going to think about it this way the first time they come across it, partly because the idea of an opera sequence in a video game is so fantastical in so many other ways that you don't really get to thinking about it as a summary of the game's larger plot and context, but it works as one, and it's really interesting. Uh, the other thing the game does that really struck me as operatic is that every time you meet a new character, so at the very beginning of the game, you only meet Terra, essentially, and then you slowly meet the other 15 characters of the cast as time moves on. Every one of them is accompanied uh, by what looks like, to me, a program note. There's a brief two sentences about the character, and then you're given the option to name the character in the convention of Japanese role-playing games. But it turns out that you don't actually get to name those characters. In most Final Fantasy games, most, you know, Chrono Trigger does this as well, you pick your Japanese role-playing game, you name all the characters. So if I want my son Owen to be this brawler monk guy, that's great. You know, I can point and say, oh, Owen, look, you're on the screen now. And he gets really excited. And that's really the purpose of that type of naming convention. Uh, but at the end of Final Fantasy VI, there's what amounts to a curtain call. Everybody gets a small vignette at the end. It's either comical or farcical, or we say goodbye to this character. And it says, if I've put in Ryan Thompson uh, for Locke's, the thief, the hero character, then it will say, Ryan Thompson as Locke Cole. Oh. Just like a program does. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Where, you know, some soprano is actually singing the part. Or, like, there's some guy playing Don Giovanni. It's obviously you've not, you know, mythically spawned Don Giovanni into your <laughs> opera theater. And the game takes a moment to remind you of that fact, which is really rare. does yeah. this in this type of way. But if you organize everything in that way, then you get what amounts to an opera playbill if you, combi if you combine them all. Uh, yeah, Tara. There's a little picture of Tara, a mysterious young woman born with the gift of magic and enslaved by... Uh, the Gestalian The Empire. Gestalian Empire. Yeah. Locke, a treasure hunter and trail-worn traveler searching the world over for relics of the past. Yeah, these types of descriptions, if you go back to Baroque opera, if you look at something like, uh, in the presentation I used Handel's Rinaldo because I was doing some work for an assignment on that particular opera at the time. Uh, if you look at the score, the first page of the score is exactly this page where it introduces the characters. There's no pictures, of course. Uh, sure, sure. <laughs> uh, because we don't understand opera characters as sprites, but we do say, you know, Ronaldo, blah, 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 description of him. You know, the eight main characters of this opera all get about this length of description in exactly this style. Uh, so we know what's, what they're going to do. And usually it's, it's a little less flowery language than this. Usually it's like the main character or the love, the love interest, the evil guy who is pursuing the love interest. Like, <laughs> but it's some frame that allows us to understand who these characters are and what they're going to be doing in the context of the opera, or in this case, the video game. So we've talked about how structurally and maybe even narratively, visually, how this represents opera. Let's talk about it musically and the themes, because there are themes that are used very specifically in this opera scene. Because you have a music theory background, you know that using the word leitmotif in an academic context is very dangerous when you're not <laughs> talking about Wagner, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yes. 
And a leitmotif at the very basic level is just a theme that recalls uh, a character or an item or an event, some particular plot point, usually a character, but it can be other things. The Ring in both Wagner's uh, opera and uh, Howard Shore's score to Lord of the Rings has its own theme, for instance, and its own kind of sentience. And so The Ring, maybe not a character in either one, but it gets its own type of music and its own influential sphere in sound, Or if you the will. shark in Jaws or something. Yeah, exactly. Like. Every time that music comes up, uh, you know that the shark is around. Even if he doesn't do anything in that particular sequence, they're thinking about the shark. Final Fantasy VI is scored almost in exactly that fashion. Every character has their own theme that's used and, perhaps importantly to an academic, modally transformed in interesting ways. Uh, so a minor theme will become major. A major theme will become minor. And Key-wise. Key major key theme will become a sad minor key. That's, that's right. Yes, yep. yes. Yep. Yeah, you know, lower the third and the sixth and, yeah. And that makes the music capable of doing really interesting things when you get multiple variations on these themes. Terra's theme, for instance, first starts out as this slow, meandering introduction into the main theme. She has amnesia, remember, at the beginning of the game, so it takes a while before the theme comes in. By the time you finally get out on the world map and do your standard Japanese role-playing game exploring, it turns out that her theme is the main theme of the first world's world map. And then it's much more march-like. You're marching around the world map, doing the things that need to be done, out to solve all these mysteries about her identity. There's this growing world now of people who want to study this academically. And you're, I would say, kind of at the forefront of that. I mean, you've been working really hard in talking about video games in an academic way. So first off, what do you think the value is of looking at video games with those glasses on? Uh, it's funny you asked me the question in that way. I was very fortunate to speak at the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco this year. When we were making this proposal, uh, all the proposals were due almost a year in advance of the conference. So when we proposed the idea that we were going to talk about the importance of cultural scholarship, I mean, we do music specifically, but really what we do is we take music as our object of study and decide what music is doing in a given context. And so some form of cultural humanities-related work. We applied... And then three weeks later, this whole Gamergate controversy came out. And there's a whole heaping bunch of negativity uh, that has come out of it that I don't really want to spend too much time talking about. But I will say if there's anything positive to be taken from it, it's that uh, video games don't exist in this vacuum anymore. Uh, video games are a part of culture, and they're worthy of study. And if they, Gamergate has done anything, it's highlighted how important it is that people do cultural work on this huge part of our culture that was previously not understood as well as it might have been. Ryan, thank you so much for coming in and speaking with me today. Yeah, I'm happy to.
Thanks for listening to Top Score from Infinite Guest. You can learn more about Ryan Thompson and see a full playlist from this episode at infiniteguest.org. Top Score's technical guru is Mark Hintz. You can follow Top Score on Twitter and Facebook at Top Score Podcast. That's Top Score. I'm Emily Reese.